Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, the podcast for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And on this holiday week, we have decided to kind of broach a tough subject. You know, the holidays can be wonderful for so many people, but a lot of times it's difficult time. You know, some people have lost a loved one. Some people have a loved one who might be sick. It's not always the easiest time of year, and we want to respect that. And so we decided to invite Dr. Catherine Mannix on the show. She is a retired palliative care doctor with 30 years of experience. She's also an author of With the End in Mind, Dying Death and Wisdom in the Age of Denial. And her new book is called Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. And this episode is really going to be about how to have those tender conversations with loved ones. And for those of you who are struggling through the holiday season, we just want you to know that our hearts are with you and we are so sorry for what you're going through. And so Bridget and I just decided, right, Bridget, that it was a good topic. This was such a great topic. I wish, you know, I always say this after we interview so many of our guests because they're so great. I wish I'd known this when my parents were dying, when they were, you know, passing away or when they had passed away. I wish I'd known this. I am comforted uh, with what Dr. Mannix has said, uh, because there is some fear de- there with people uh, when you're dying and when you know you're dying. There's definitely fear. I, I would feel, I-, I mean, I don't even like to think about it because of the fear, but what she has experienced uh, with patients and with the people that she's trained with has been so valuable, I think, to everyone that it's such an important message to hear. And also, I just want to add that if, when you're listening to this episode, if there's some echoing, <laughs> Dr. Mannix is in uh, Great Britain, and sometimes the internet connections aren't great between the U.S. and other countries. So please bear with us uh, with some of the sound issues, because it's so important. I am so glad that I read her book. I am so glad that we got to talk to her. It just gives a little bit more of a feeling of comfort if you are losing someone or if you yourself have been diagnosed with um, something that's terminal. I felt a lot of comfort and a lot. Her voice is so extremely calming. calming. Oh my gosh, guys. You're just you just kind of fall into this comfort zone. And she will actually explain when there is when you're in the last stages of death, what you can expect to see from a loved one. And that draws great comfort. Like Bridget was saying, had we known those stages, I mean, when my father was dying, I didn't know. I thought every, every moment was the last moment. And she'll actually explain to you in a peaceful way, what most deaths actually seem like. Obviously there are certain deaths that are more tragic and you don't get that peaceful kind of passing, but it does bring us a lot of peace. So we're going to let Dr. Mannix start where we will talk to you after. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, our guest is Dr. Catherine Mannix, who is a retired palliative care physician. We are going to talk about death. And it's an important topic because most of the people we know avoid this topic at all costs. And it's something that's going to happen in everybody's life. By midlife, you've probably experienced death in some form. And we want to not normalize the conversation, but treat it with the respect it deserves. So welcome, Catherine, to the show. Thank you both very much for inviting me. 
Well, thank you for the time. We know you're in the UK, so our time zones are different and we appreciate you scheduling it with us. So you are the author of two books, With the End in Mind, Dying, Death, and Wisdom in the Age of Denial. And you have a new book out called Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. And I love that you use tender conversation. I want to start with how did you get involved in this? Because your experience is important for people to understand that you are not new to this. You have witnessed death time and time again in your profession. So can you give us a little idea of your history? Of course. So I I trained in a British medical school, qualified around the age of 23. And I thought I was going to be a cancer physician. That was my career aim. So as a junior doctor in the early training grades, doing the postgraduate exams in general medicine, I tried to choose training posts in Um, in hospitals and in units where there was a lot of cancer. And this would be the uh, early 1980s. So far fewer people were cured of cancers then than are now. So as a consequence of choosing those places to work, I met a lot of people who were in the last part of their lives. And because I was always very interested in how they were living despite having quite advanced disease, the nurses realised that I was a little bit unusual as a doctor in that I wanted to be bedside beyond the point where the doctors were really being very useful because I just was intrigued by the people and how they were coping and how their families were coping. Um, So I was very much helped by being alongside nurses, listening to nurses, talking to people about their hopes and fears, about their worries for their family in the future, that those sorts of things. So I had great teachers in compassionate conversations at a very early stage. And eventually I passed the necessary exams and went to work in the big local cancer centre. And there what I discovered was actually... Finding the cure for cancer was not terribly exciting. And that those people who were not going to be cured just still fascinated me. That there was something about the pressure of time to get things the best they could be. So they weren't in hospital, so they were in their important place, which, guess what, doctors, isn't hospital. Um, And around about the time that I was realising that maybe I wasn't really a career oncologist a hospice was built about three blocks from where I lived and I felt like the writing was on the wall at that point so I wrote to them and said do you have any jobs for uh, a junior doctor who you know I've worked in all the hospitals in this city I know most of the senior um, medical and cancer doctors in this city because I've worked for them they've been my trainers Um, I could be a liaison for you between the hospice and the local national health service services what do you think and they gave me a job palliative care for the next 30 years I just absolutely loved it and I worked in hospices I worked in community palliative care teams I need to say something here about the difference between the concept of hospice in America. That's what, um, yeah. I was going to ask that. So, so, so I've worked in people's houses. I've worked in uh, hospices in, in Britain are buildings. And they're buildings with usually, um, well, always a ward, a place where 
patients can be looked after, nursed in bed, but very often they will also have outreach services into the local community, much as hospice is, is often seen in the United States. But we also have NHS-funded community palliative care services, which are services that are often uh, provided by hospice programs in the United States. And then for the last 10 years of my working life, I was working in a big, busy teaching hospital. So this is not my first rodeo. You know, I have seen dying up close and personal and have understood the process of it and that it, what it's usually like and therefore how if we can recognize what it's usually like and how peaceful it usually is when it's not like that we shouldn't be accepting that we shouldn't be saying oh well he's dying what do you expect we should be saying this is not okay and rescuing this person from the distress that they're experiencing one of the important conversations that we need to have as you said a tender conversation with loved ones is what are your priorities when you're in that process of possibly at the end of your life, is it more important that you get to, one of the examples in your book is with a man who has some form of ALS, a neurological degenerative condition, and he wanted Christmas. And that was important to him. So in you know November, they had Christmas. So do you think that doctors are so focused on keeping the patient alive that they aren't as focused on the quality or the priorities of the patient in, have the patients even thought about what their priorities are? Like how, it would be so important to know that. I think that this is a conversation that we approach with great awkwardness. And I think we approach it with awkwardness because we take people from a population that doesn't understand the process of dying, hasn't seen it, has only heard it spoken of in hushed tones and kind of awfulized and dreadfulized. And we take those young people and we put them through our schools of nursing and medicine and paramedic science and we bring them out as healthcare practitioners at the other end. And we've trained them to stop people from dying. So yes, doctors are reluctant to have those conversations, but it's partly because they don't quite know how to talk about it because they haven't been trained either. And it's partly because they're trying to have that conversation with a person who absolutely doesn't want to have that conversation. So it is really, really a, a tender dance to enable people to get to the position where they can have that conversation. I found it uh, in your book, I think it was with the end in mind, the story of Sabine, the woman that was French. And that that really struck me because that, I guess that was a learning moment for you because you were still in the beginning of your career. It was that when the, your, the person came in and the questions uh, that he asked Sabine and how she was scared. And that is such a big thing that people are scared of dying. Yeah because they're scared yes. of what they're going through. Can you share just a little bit about uh, that scenario and how he talked to her and what was most common that he witnessed? Of course, because this, this was a conversion moment for me in my, in my history as well. So I'd gone to work in this hospice and this was the young director of medicine at that hospice who'd trained uh, in another hospice in the south of the country. And because of the jobs that I'd chosen, I'd seen a lot of people die already by then, you know, maybe several hundred deaths. So, you know, I 
I knew about dying. Because, you know, picture the scene, I'm maybe, I don't know, 27, 28 years old. You know that, you know, when you know everything. Spend the rest of your life just gradually unpicking that. Um, so when one of the nurses came and said that this patient who spoke English with the most astonishingly dense French accent, even though she'd lived here, you know, this would this would have been the late 1980s, and she'd lived here since the 1940s, still spoke English like a person who's learning English wonderful to listen to and our senior doctor's family were actually French so he was fluently bilingual which is very common in certain parts of Canada but less common around the rest of the anglophone world I think we have to say and she loved to chat with him and he loved to chat with her in French and she used to be a little bit flirting with him when she was chatting and we all just we we were just delighted by that So when the nurse came to say she'd been doing Sabine's hair and Sabine had explained to her that she was very, very frightened about dying because she was terrified of being overwhelmed by pain as she was dying. And that would have been a serious concern just on its own, wouldn't it? But it turns out that that wasn't the only concern. And this nurse did a really fantastic thing because I think a lot of us would have been tempted at that point to say, oh, you mustn't worry about pain. You know, we've got great drugs. We've got really good doctors here. Don't worry about that. It's all going to be fine. And it kind of squashes the concern away. doesn't leave space for it. And the nurse didn't do that. She said, tell me what makes that so frightening for you. And Sabine explained to her that if she were to feel overwhelmed by pain and so she were to despair as she was actually dying, her belief as a French Roman Catholic was that that would be uh, what she called a mortal sin and therefore she would not be able to go to heaven when she died. And she was completely sure that heaven was where her husband was waiting for her. So suddenly, instead of this being a concern about pain, this is this huge existential terror of eternal separation from this man who'd been her only love. She'd been a widow for 10 years. She was looking forward to being reunited with him after death. And now this thing might happen. Um, my boss said, well, that's really important. We need to go and talk to her about that. He said to me, come with me. We, you know, this is important. We'll go together. And the nurse must certainly come because she's the person who's been given this piece of confidence by the patient. She's absolutely this person's advocate. She must come as well. And we're going along the corridor and I'm wondering why I'm tagging along because I think we're going to do a pain consult. And I'm, you know, I'm quite good at pain. I'm really sorry I was that person. <laughs> And and I recognise it now, but I don't think I had any insight at all at the time. So he sat down and he chatted to her and, you know, she told him to sit on the bed with a little bit of patting of the mattress and we're all trying not to laugh. Um, And then this conversation started that was like no conversation I'd ever heard in medicine. And this is, you know, five years of medical school, four years of postgraduate training, and this had never happened. Tell me what you think happens as a person dies, Sabine. And I'm thinking, you can't say that. You can't ask that. What does he think he's doing? And she said, well, she'd seen somebody die of gunshot wounds during the war. And she'd seen her husband die after his heart attack. He'd been semi-conscious coming in and out of unconsciousness for a while before he eventually died. He'd said all the prayers with the priest, which is why she was quite sure he was in heaven. 
Um, and she was just so frightened that she wasn't going to be able to be like him. She wasn't brave enough. So now my boss says, well, would it help you if I described to you what usually happens as people are dying? And now I'm really uncomfortable. She's saying yes, because she absolutely trusts him. She's built this really good relationship with him. And so he's sitting on the bed and I'm sitting on a little stool at the bottom of the bed so I can see them both. There's a nurse sitting nearby. And he says, well, the thing is that it doesn't seem to matter what the illness is that a person is dying from, Sabine. Towards the very end of somebody's life, the pattern is always really similar. And then he started to describe this pattern. And I'm still thinking, you can't say it's a pattern because, you know, I've seen a lot of dying. I've seen people die from lung cancer and brain cancer and breast cancer and bowel cancer. I've seen people die from heart failure and kidney failure and liver failure. They're all different. And then he started to describe how they're all the same, that actually people run out of energy, that they can't do the things they used to do anymore, that they, they sleep more, that sleep recharges their batteries and gives them energy to do stuff. But because they haven't got a lot of energy, they've got to choose how to spend it and spend it wisely. And as time goes by, they gradually are sleeping more and they're awake less. And he said, you know, you might even have found that's already happening to you. And as she says, Yes, well, in fact, she says we, because she's French. And um, by now, she's sitting right up. Her eyes are locked on his eyes. She's stroking his hand and nodding as he's speaking. So I'm feeling really uncomfortable. But she isn't. She is absolutely in the moment with him. And he said to her, you know, if at any point this is too much to listen to, you just say, and I promise I'll stop. Shall I go on? Yes, you go on. So we've talked about people becoming sleepy and not having as much energy. And you've told me that that's already happening to you. And that's good. And I think you can't say that's good. And he's saying, well, so that's good because it shows us already that you're following the usual pattern. So what happens next is this pattern is um, that people become more deeply asleep and in fact they sink into unconsciousness and by the very end of somebody's life they're not asleep they're in a coma they're deeply unconscious the only bit of their brain that's working now is the bit that manages their breathing and so breathing starts to run in these automatic cycles and some of the time it's deep and some of the time it's shallow it moves between being quite fast and gradually getting slower Sometimes there are quite long pauses and then it might suddenly get fast again and start the whole cycle. So if your family are around the bed at that point, if your nephew and his wife are here, we will make sure they understand that the breathing that they're watching isn't because you're breathless. And the funny noises that people make when they can't feel their throat anymore, sometimes they breathe out through their voice box and they... Mm, and, you know, we'll make sure they know that that isn't groaning. That's just somebody so unconscious that they just can't even feel their throat anymore. And at the very end of somebody's life, Sabine, what we see is their breathing becomes slower and there are pauses. And then it just very gently stops. There's a breath out. And then it turns out there isn't another breath in. 
Nothing special about that last breath. No sudden choking or seizures or feeling of fading away or terror. It's very, very gentle. And by now she's lying back on her pillows. She's still stroking his hand. She's smiling. She's nodding. Her eyes are closed. And she pulls his hands towards her and kisses them. And then she lets us know that we're no longer required. Eyes are closed. She just kind of waves her hand. I'm weeping. My eyes are streaming. I just need to have a moment. And, and my lovely boss says, uh, you know, are you okay? And I say, yes, tea. I say, yes. <laughs> so I go off and make the tea, which is my reflective practice, I suppose. But while I'm making the tea, what I'm thinking is, wow, two things here. One is, I've seen that hundreds of times and I've never noticed. I'll be so busy worrying about you know, that person's temperature and that person's hemoglobin levels and that person's oxygen levels. And I haven't stood back and seen this happens every time. I, I know that he's just told her the absolute truth because I have seen it hundreds of times, just haven't realized. But the other thing is, wow, you can tell people that in an ordinary voice, you can give them a blow by blow account of what it's like to be with somebody as they're dying. And it offers them comfort. It doesn't space them out. It doesn't terrify them. It actually does the opposite of that. And isn't that fascinating? Because that's actually what midwives do. So in in Britain, when we're pregnant, we're attended almost exclusively by midwives. You only see the obstetrician if things are really not going well. Um, and what they do is they prepare us for pregnancy and they talk us through what's going to happen during labour. And then during labour, they're not telling us for the first time. They are reminding us, you already know this. We've already talked about this. You know what this is about. And that's what we're doing for dying people. We're describing it. We're allowing them to anticipate it, to think, well, if that's what's going to happen, well, I could do that in my own bed at home. Or, you know, my house isn't suitable for being progressively more tired with the bathroom on one level and the bedroom on a different level. I need to think about where I'm going to live when that's happening. And then when it is happening, we're reminding them while they're awake enough to be reminded and their companions that this is normal. This is the process. This is okay. And provided the person isn't uncomfortable, that's the process that will just play itself out. And the real art is to make sure that their discomfort doesn't break through because a strong amount of pain or breathlessness or itch or nausea would wake that brain up that's been closing down and the, the person would come back um, more awake but agitated by their discomfort. So really important to find ways to keep their pain relief medications or, or other symptom relief medications ticking away in the background, even when they're not awake enough to swallow them anymore. Um, not because those drugs are sedating a person or bringing death closer but they're just allowing them to be comfortable enough that they can relax into the process that's overtaking their body and gradually closing down their brain do you find that the family is sometimes the biggest obstacle to this more gentle death because they don't want to let go of that person, they want them awake, so maybe they don't give them the medication, or they're afraid they're going to be in pain, so they don't follow that process. Do you find them oftentimes the biggest challenge? 
I've seen that happen, but I have to say that very often part of the engaging in this whole process is getting the whole companionship on board. So who's going to be your, your set of companions towards the end of your life and what do they need to know and what do we need to tell them so that they're competent now to recognize you know, with the first line instructions at home. So thinking about somebody with maybe a lung disease, we, we're a, 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 we were a coal mining community around here. We've got a lot of elderly people with horrible lungs from having worked down the mines. So to be able to talk to them and to their families to say, okay, these are the different things that we can use for breathlessness. These are the ones that your your dad, your husband, they usually men, it's not legal for women to go down coal mines in the UK. Um, so the, if, if he's short of breath and he's struggling to breathe, then this is the inhaler to use or this is the tablet pill to use, this is the, the medicine, this is how you measure it. Show me how you're going to measure it. Let me see you pull it up into a little syringe so that I can check. You know, I, try, I, I did this once with somebody and his wife, I hadn't realised, I knew she had diabetes, but what I didn't realise was a diabetes wrecked her eyes. So she couldn't draw up the medicine in the syringe accurately. And if I hadn't checked that, she'd have just nodded and told me that that was going to happen. And it was quite possible then that her husband would have ended up either underdosed and, and struggling with his breathing or overdosed and made more drowsy than he needed to be by that medicine. So it's really good to rehearse it with people as well. And the other thing that's really good to rehearse with people, and this is going to sound a little bit macabre, is to talk through what if scenarios, what if you came into the room and you found he wasn't breathing anymore. What will you do? Because we know what people will do. They will dial 911, right? And now suddenly there's flashing lights and there's paramedics and there's all this hoo-ha at the moment that should just be gentle and respectful and quiet. So if you found that there were long pauses in his breathing, what would that tell you? Well, that might tell you that actually he's coming to towards the end of breathing now. And who does he want to have here at the very end of his life? Who do you want to have for your supporters around you at the very end of his life? So if you start to see those breathing patterns, then that's the time to make those calls and get those companions around you for his sake and for your sake. And, you know, he's very worried that he might cough some blood up so let's think about what would we do if he coughed some blood up? Well, if he coughs a little bit of blood up, you know, we'll, you know, offer him Kleenex and we'll mop it up and we'll give him something to spit into. Um, but if a lot of blood comes up, that can be very frightening for people. And so, you know, I, I, if, if we think somebody's in danger of having a big bleed, then there's a really practical tip. Again, I learned this from nurses. Have some navy blue towels handy. Okay. You heard it here first, folks, because blood doesn't really show up on navy blue towels like it shows up on your beautiful um, you know, Egyptian cotton bedding, right? So if they're coughing into that or they're, they're vomiting blood into that, then it's less frightening to look at. Just to do that rehearsal for what will we do if, so that we then don't suddenly have a panic and then the other thing to do is to think about, and who else would you call who needs to be calm with you? 
So here in the UK, we have a kind of phantom relative who I'm going to refer to as the daughter in Australia. Okay, and we haven't seen the daughter in Australia very regularly because Australia is a long way away and she hasn't been part of the planning for her parents' end-of-life care. But as soon as she hears that time is getting short, she's on the flight, she's here, and suddenly she wants to know, why is my mum not in the hospital? Why is my mum not in the intensive care unit? Why is my mum taking this drug called morphine? That's terrible stuff, you know, we shouldn't be using that. Um, why is there an order here that says if my mum's heart stops, we're not going to start CPR? So you might call it a DNR, DNR order and we would call it a DNA CPR, do not attempt CPR order. Um, what is going on here? Are you just leaving her to die? You're just letting her die. Nobody's trying, nobody's doing anything. What's going on? And she comes in and she disrupts the whole thing and she calls the ambulances and all the rest of it. Now, you could have that difficulty just between the north and the south or between the east and west coasts, couldn't you? Just, just in the same country. So it's really, really important that those people who have a vested interest in this person's well-being but who aren't here while we're doing the planning understand the plan. Because they're not trying to make mischief, they're doing their loving best, but they're undermining all of that really careful planning that we've put in place. So families can make it go very wobbly, but usually because we haven't involved them well enough, I think, during the planning and they haven't really thought through and rehearsed in their minds what it is that we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, I, when you said that, that just brings back lots of memories. Part of it is I wish that I had known this when my mother was dying because I would have known what was going on because it, ex exactly what you described, where she would sleep more, where she, I guess when she was in the coma state, she would move her arms a lot. Like she would be, her eyes would be closed and all of a sudden she'd open them and start moving her arms around. Fortunately, I have a sister that was a nurse that was mother. My mother was allowed to die at home and took great care of her, knew a little bit about it. But the rest of us didn't really know what was happening. But that was really great to hear that. And I do think it's, you know, we do have, I'm from a large family. So we have siblings that are far away that came in and they're in, they just didn't know. So it's so important to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. The other thing, when you're talking about your mum moving her arms around, there's, there's, a, there's a state between being asleep and being awake. And we've all been in it, you know, when you're really deeply asleep and the alarm sounds on your clock. And for a moment, what happens is the dream incorporates the alarm noise so you think there's a you know there's a there's a fire truck approaching or or something and then gradually you think no 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 that's actually it's a noise it's a noise in the room oh yes it's the alarm okay and now you're orientated so we've all had that kind of twilight experience in that period when people are moving between sleep and awake and sometimes dipping into deep unconsciousness before they come back up again, they may very often find themselves in that twilight state. And sometimes they may never get fully back to being awake. So they'll be in that slightly muddled state of being mainly asleep, but awake enough to talk to us at the same time. And they're not quite making the same sense of the world that the rest of us are. And we call it confusion. And if we agitate them by saying, no, you're wrong, 
when they know that their reality is as they're perceiving it, then they get agitated as well. So it's really important when that's happening to just be really calm, to have enough light in the room that people can see things and make sense of things, being able to see a big clock face because older people, they don't go for these digital clock things. They understand time as a circle with, with hands moving around it. Um, they can see the day-night cycle. They can see that it's dark outside or it's light outside. And we're just keeping the environment familiar enough that they can make sense of it. And then they may say things to us that sound wrong, that sound confused, even sound silly. But when we really listen to what they're saying, sometimes actually what they're saying is their take on the reality that they perceive. So um, we had a family member who had um, a, a car accident many years ago, and then a few years later had a bleed in their brain. And when the family went into the neurosurgery unit to visit him, he was still waiting to go down to the operating theatre to have the, the, the bleeding corrected and, and the clot taken out. He was saying to the family, keep down, there are snipers, keep down, they're, they're aiming for your head, they're aiming for your head, they'll take you out. Now, everybody in that ward had something seriously wrong with their head. Some of them were so sick that their head was going to take them out. There was common sense in what he was saying, that people's heads are not safe in here. And some of us are so unsafe that we might die. And he was still in a situation where that could have applied to him. So the family wanted to say, oh, no, it's okay, don't worry, it's fine. But of course, because they weren't stooping down, he remained agitated about their heads. Whereas getting them all to sit down and then to say to the sick person, we're being really careful with everybody's heads here and we've got a shield now. It's safe. It's okay. The police are aware or whatever. So we're not quite buying completely into their fantasy, but we're giving them the assurances they need that even though they're right to have recognised the danger, we've taken steps to make the danger safe for everybody just now so so listening to the to the truth that's coming out in the muddledness is a really really important part of dealing with people when they're just a little bit muddled that's that's interesting because my question she would be i my father has passed and it was not a pleasant, he was on hospice and he was fighting every day just you know he felt like it was a reward if he survived the day like he beat death today and stubborn till the very end. But what I would notice is when he would be in a deep sleep and then he would wake up from it, most of his immediate family members, my grandmother, his brothers had passed already. And he would reach out and talk to them, like reach his hand out. But then he would grasp the back of the bed as if to say, I'm not ready yet. It's not. Yeah, not yet. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, he, or if he would wake up, he would ask me where my mom is and they had been divorced for years and where our dog from when I was like 10 years old, if his dog would bark, he'd call the dog. So it's almost like they would go back in time to different. And is that just that dreaming state that you're talking about? Yeah, I think, I think that it is. And it's people seeking security and safety and those things, isn't it? But we know that um, people see or think that they see, and I don't know what this is, people who have already died, 
and feel immensely reassured by that. And I've certainly had a situation where I've been called by the, the nurse at nighttime from the hospice to say, you know, we've got this, this patient who's here for two weeks respite. He's coming because the family are putting a downstairs bathroom in the house. So it's all on the level and, um, you know, he's going to be able to cope. So he's not here to die. He's here to get a bit of physiotherapy, get a bit more mobile. But he hasn't been so well the last couple of days. But I'm phoning you now at three o'clock in the morning, Dr. Mannix, because he tells me that his dead mother is sitting at the end of his bed. And I just thought you'd like to know. And in fact, what she's saying to me is, this person might be dying. And we know that that is a thing that happens. And he hasn't got permission to die, this guy. He's, you know, is so I need to go in and have a look. And when I go in and have a look, what I find is that he's brewing a chest infection that we hadn't suspected and we're able to give him antibiotics and he doesn't get better and he enjoys his glorious bathroom. But he was already dropping his oxygen levels. He was so sick that he could die and there was his mum. So there are more things going on than we can always understand. And a lot of the folklore is built on long observation and experience and we shouldn't disrespect it you know it's something that we should really be taking very seriously we don't understand it we can't explain it but we recognize it as a pattern of experience towards the end of life fascinating it really is i think also a question that i would have is that when someone passes and they're a little bit older it's not that it's any easier to lose someone that you love but when the death is for someone who is younger, how yeah. do you help the family? How do you make that conversation as tender as possible? Yeah, that's, that's always really difficult. It's always really difficult. So when we're working with families where the patient is a younger person, and you know, part of my work was working with our regional children's cancer centre, so working with teenagers and children at the end of their lives, there's no way of making that okay, is there? There's no way that that's an all right thing to be happening. But actually, the thing that's really interesting about children and young people is how concerned they are about who's going to look after their families after they've died. And if we don't give them the space to talk about that and to explore that and to give us the instructions that are required so that their mums and dads and brothers and sisters are looked after properly, then they feel they haven't done the necessary preparing so it is really important that we can have those conversations and that we create a space for those conversations it's wonderful if parents and siblings can manage to have those conversations but sometimes it's too sad and sometimes it's staff who are the advocates because actually it's just unbearable for the immediate family but quite often what happens is that they get there just step by step so you know the, the child who asks them what if um and there's there's a boy in um with the end in mind dan who has muscular dystrophy who uh, is one of my all-time heroes but i've got to know his mum very well since dan has died since the book was written um but Dan's mum always knew that one day he would ask her whether he was going to live as long as his brothers, because his brothers didn't have the gene for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and he did, 
and he had friends who had already died of Duchenne muscular dystrophy because he'd met them in the outpatient clinic. So he was 12 and was struggling now to get into his bunk and he liked to be in a bunk and they were thinking about how are they going to help him to still be able to use the steps because his legs were becoming weaker and he got into bed and said to her this is going to happen to my other muscles as well isn't it mum am I going to die and she knew that she had to answer him honestly because actually the whole of the rest of their next well as it turned out 12 years relationship was going to rely on him being able to trust her to be honest with him so she was able to say, you're not going to live as long as other boys of your age. And he was distraught and he wept for hours and she wept with him. But it meant that they then cemented this understanding that I'm going to be your advocate and I'm not going to abandon you and I'm going to tell you the truth because you're asking me for the truth and that's the right thing to do. In the book about the young woman who has melanoma and she is just 900 miles an hour and she doesn't want to accept, she just wants to get back into chemo. She doesn't want to accept that the end is near and it's actually her husband who who says it's okay for her to think that way and gives a beautiful example of why he so in that's like the opposite end where you sometimes don't tell them because they don't want to know so that's really interesting when people use denial it's not that they've decided to use denial kind of the sat down and thought how am I going to deal with this one I'll pretend it's not happening it's that psychologically that defense mechanism has kicked in and it prevents them from acknowledging the reality so they're not choosing it it's happening and if you have really robust denial then the bad thing is not happening and therefore you don't have to feel any of the distress that's associated with that bad thing happening so it's an absolutely fantastic self-defense mechanism the difficulty is that for a lot of people with progressive diseases as the disease progresses, they get more and more difficulty with different things like Dan getting into his bunk. And gradually it becomes harder and harder to maintain a belief that nothing is wrong. And we know that it takes quite a while to move from nothing is wrong to, okay, I've understood what's wrong and I've got my head around it and I'm going to deal with it in this way instead now. That adjustment process takes time so if denial starts to break down very very close to the end of life there isn't time to do the adjusting and so the person is washed over by the horror of realizing what's actually happening without having a different emotional resource pack that they can lean on so it wasn't that the young woman with melanoma hadn't been told she had been repeatedly told and she subconsciously filtered out bits of information that she accepted and other bits that she didn't so when I went to see her in the hospital and she recognized me because I've been the doctor who'd given her her chemotherapy a few years before she was able to say to me I've still got a bit of that cancer 
and it's in the top of my leg here. But the main problem is that there's a terrible infection and I need antibiotics. It's not the cancer that's the problem. It's the infection that's the problem. So she got herself into a way of saying, yeah, I, it, there's a problem, but it's not a terrible problem. It's not a bad problem. It's not a problem people die from. And she was still maintaining that stance you know, 20 minutes before she lapsed into unconsciousness, she was still telling us that she was going to eat this thing. But what was wonderful was her very young husband being able to say to her parents, this is like when I'm climbing. He was a mountaineer. He said, when I'm climbing, when I'm on a high pinnacle, I know there's a drop behind me. I know that if I fall, I'll die. It is not helpful at all for keeping my feet steady and my hands steady and my focus steady to keep me safe to think about the bad possibilities. I'm absolutely focused on the rock in front of me, the next breath, the next movement of my hand, the next movement of my feet. And that's what she is doing. She's absolutely focused on this moment in which she is not dying. And we have to let her do that. And her parents were magnificent and they sat in the room and they did all the things that people do around a deathbed. They reminisced about how great holidays they'd had and stupid moments that they'd had and they told her how wonderful she was and how much they loved her. But what they couldn't do was say goodbye because that wasn't allowed by her level of not acknowledging how close to dying she was. But they weren't left with things that were unsaid. They managed to say the thank yous, the I love yous. And, and be with her to her last breath, even though she didn't acknowledge that she was dying. That's an incredible story. Mm-hmm. She really was an incredible woman, an incredible if you If funding was not an issue and you, you, know, you had unlimited resources for hospitals, either in the UK or the US, what would you like to see done to improve the conversation not just palliative care, but because I think when a lot of the research shows when palliative care is introduced earlier, people actually live longer. But what would you like to see as, as resources given to hospitals of critically care patients? Great question. I think that there's room for more palliative care practitioners. We know that the World Health Organization is about to put a report out over the next few days saying that you know internationally there are not enough palliative care services. But we don't need huge numbers of specialists to see every person who's approaching the end of their life. Most people can be looked after by the doctor who's always looked after them. Maybe it's their family practitioner, maybe it's their person who's looking after their failing kidneys or their ailing heart or their bad lungs or their cancer or whatever it is. And perhaps one of the things that we need is is the resource that gives palliative care practitioners enough time in our working week to be able to go and offer education to these other practitioners in order that they feel more confident to be able to have those conversations we don't want a situation where a cardiologist has looked after somebody from, you know, their first diagnosis of a, of a heart problem in their early 30s to dying in their late 50s. And then suddenly they say, oh, there's some conversations you need to have. And I'm going to get this other doctor or these other nurses to come in and have these conversations with you. That's, that's abandonment. 
we need to empower those people to have the confidence to have those conversations and also to be able to say you know the, the mix of drugs that I'm using now to try and keep you as well as I possibly can keep you are still leaving you with quite a lot of limitations and I'm sorry about that that is in fact the best that we can do but we do have colleagues who are experts in helping people to live alongside difficult symptoms and I'd like to introduce those as part of our team now so the shift isn't that cardiology stops and palliative care takes over, but that palliative care weaves itself into the cardiology practice now. And that means that we're keeping all of the really important understanding of heart, heart failure, heart failure drugs, uh, the way the kidneys work when the heart isn't working so well, all of those things. That's the expertise of the cardiology team. They're still being applied for this person at the same time as my team, our nurses are coming in and saying, okay, we've got some tricks that are really great for breathlessness when your lungs are getting a bit soggy or, you know, how to um, be mo mobile even though your legs are getting quite swollen because of retained fluid or whatever. So it's not either or, it's both and. And I would like us to have sufficient resources that we can do the education because I think the education would lead to earlier conversations about managing people's expectations instead of promising them they will be well we start to talk about the limitations of treatment and how well we hope we can keep them um, and then we don't have this awkwardness of the person never being fully well and the doctor then feeling that he's let the person down or she's let the patient down we've always understood this was going to be a challenge we've worked on it together as a challenge now it's getting really challenging. I have some additional colleagues who are really helpful at this point in an illness. Um, seeing palliative care as something that helps people to live well, not just get wheeled in because we think this person's going to die in 48 hours' time. That's the most appalling misuse of palliative care is to relegate it to the deathbed when it is too late to do anything about the person's quality of life for the previous week's and months and years when we could have been helping them to live better. Get a priority to have a tender conversation with someone that you okay. love. I'd like to say something about that tenderness, that actually, if you think about it as a difficult conversation or a challenging conversation or a courageous conversation, there's something about I'm toughening myself up, you know, putting my armor on, I'm getting ready to do this thing, it's gonna be really, really hard. Well, actually, what I'm really saying is let's take all the armour off. Let's just say, okay, this is me and this is you. We've known each other a long time. We're really fond of each other. We've had our differences. But I'd really like to talk about this important thing. And I'd like you to listen to me. And when I've finished, I'd like you to tell me what you think about that and whether any part of that would be hard for you if it came around. And that's what I was asking you to say on my behalf. And I wonder what you thought of for yourself. Would you like to tell me what you think? And I'll tell you if I think I can step up and say that on your behalf too. And once we're doing that person to person in that gentle way, you know, with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or whatever it is that takes you fancy. If there's something about seeing it as a moment of shared tenderness, somehow draws the sting, doesn't it, of trying to talk about something that's going to make us very sad. 
one of us will die before the other one does. And the person who's left behind will be very sad. But they could be even sadder if they'd been asked to step up for us and speak up for us and they didn't know what to say. So this absolutely is a loving, gracious thing to do for the people who matter most to us to discuss what matters most to us and how we'd like to be cared for when the very end of our life is coming. And then just put it away till the next zero rolls around and it's still the same. You might like to do it in the fives once you've got to 70. Okay, that's fair. Okay, we'll do that, yeah. Move it up. It's like colonoscopies. Move them up a little. Bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, and so does Bridget. Because I think what you were doing is so important and it's tackling a taboo subject that people wait till the very last minute when their nerves are at on their fingertips and they don't have a clear head to really come up with decisions. And if it is someone that you love, you always want to make sure you know what they want so that you're not left saying, I should have, should they, would they have wanted to be buried? Would they have wanted this? Would they have wanted treatment? So it's your books are wonderful. I haven't read the second one. Listen yet, so I'm excited. I started it. I started it. And then you said if you can we get it find the, at book depository. Is that correct? That's um, right. And they, and they will deliver in in North America, in the USA, and Canada. Yeah. So make sure to look for that at the book depository website. It's called Listen: How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. But you want to start with the end in mind, which is her first book, and. Thank you just so much for what you are doing. You could be retired and just relaxing somewhere on a beach. And instead, you're still having those tough conversations that you have had for years. So we, we truly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Colleen and Bridget. It's been absolutely delightful to have a tea break with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, we want to thank Dr. Mannix so much for sharing this information with us. I mean, she is so peaceful, like Colleen said, and her voice is so calming. For people, for our listeners out there that have experienced that, again, we really are thinking of you. We hope that this podcast... Um, brought you some comfort and please check out Dr. Mannix's books and they're so comforting um so much in there that more than we could even include in this podcast I believe if you go on YouTube there is a hospice portion with Dr. Mannix where she does a five minute talk and it's so wonderful that I would highly suggest or recommend and we'll put the link in the show notes for that Yes, yes. And and make sure that you catch us on all social media. Um, also uh follow our follow us and, and rate and um comment on our podcast. And also um we do have our website, hotflashescooltopics.com. We do have products for midlife women on there that we have found that we really love and check those out. And we wish you all the very happiest of holidays. We hope that you get to be around people that you love. Yes. Happy holidays. 